Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. ways the history of medicine is a history of compassion, of humanity's desire to prolong, enhance and sustain the lives of those we love. Yet, in other ways, it's a history of cruelty, of our propensity to make catastrophic mistakes, stick stubbornly to dogma and take huge risks when it comes to the lives of others. This series will take you on a tour of these histories, stopping at various locations along the way. We cannot tell the complete story, but we hope to illuminate at least some of it. In today's episode, we're going to explore the ancient world. To kick things off, let's look at an object from Sick to Death's collection. Dean Patton, you are the head honcho at Sick to Death. What objects do you have for us for today's episode? Not just uh, an an object, a selection of objects today. So we have a medical kit, which would have been a a, a Roman doctor's surgical instruments and and tools he would have used to to go about his job. So what's inside? What What do we find in these medical kits? So there's a lot of objects that you would know straight away from a a modern doctor's toolkit. So we have some scalpels, varying sizes. We have spatulas. We have spoons. And we have some slightly more unusual or slightly more difficult to kind of guess what they are tools. These are used for things like removing arrows. We have Mm. a rather strange contraption, which is actually a speculum, which is not too far off what a modern speculum looks like as well. And we also have things like votive offerings as well. So little votive eye and a votive leg, which obviously wouldn't belong in a modern doctor's toolkit, but they were, you know, an important part of of medical treatment in the Roman world. Anyone with a passing knowledge of medical history will have heard the names Galen and Hippocrates, who are certainly important. But before we get to them, I'm keen to tunnel back deeper in time. What do we mean by the ancient world? How far back can we go? The first written records? Early archaeological evidence? In truth, the ancient period covers more time than all the other episodes combined, so it would be impossible to give a comprehensive history. What we hope to do, however, is provide something of a survey, an overview if you like, to whet your appetite and provide the crucial background needed for the rest of the series. We're going to begin with the earliest archaeological evidence of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. If we're going back into early prehistory, looking for evidence of disease, looking for evidence of medicine, then we're, we're up against some really big challenges. That's Dr Matt Pope, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Archaeology, UCL. We're going back deep into time where preservation is really poor. We don't have anything prior to 10,000 years ago that's preserving any soft tissue. We've just got bones preserving, and this tends to be within burials, whether we're dealing with the burials of modern humans or the burials of Neanderthals. We're picking out, even from these very early periods, and and let's think of Neanderthal archaeology, which we can span from somewhere like 400,000 years ago to 40,000 years ago. That's That's a big chunk of the Ice Age. We've got plenty of evidence that Neanderthal people are looking after each other, have basic knowledge of medication, basic knowledge of treating some really serious wounds. And that's showing us something really important. That's showing us that medicine has a deep 
evolutionary history. One of the really good early records that we that we have comes from Shanadar Cave and in a really good summary of Neanderthal care for their own population, Penny Spikins and others have documented the number of different wounds, injuries and conditions that we find on the Shanadar 1 skeleton. This is a famous skeleton that was buried with care, excavated in the 1960s. Now with this individual, he not only had a crushing injury on the side of the face that may have affected his, his vision, he had a degenerative disease potentially, but the worst injury was a complete absence of the lower right arm. And it looks as if this arm may have been injured in the past and may even have been amputated. Now, that is an incredible bit of evidence suggesting that an injury could have been mitigated by something as exceptional as an amputation. There's infection control there, there's understanding anatomy, there's potentially pain control, all implicated by this, this really dramatic piece of surgery. And the fact that this individual survived so long with these conditions and is a relatively mature adult male shows that there was care that this person did not have to participate in, in hunting and robust activities. The group as a whole looked after them and cared for them. We got other examples as well. The, a very late Neanderthal um, from around 45,000 years ago at Saint-Césaire in France um, showed a healed head injury. Now, actually, healed head injuries are really common both in Neanderthal and in modern humans, Homo sapiens skeletons from, from the Ice Age. It's showing possibly lots of interpersonal conflicts, you know, violence within in the group, maybe violence between groups. Head injuries do not usually just occur, you know, severe head injuries without some degree of violence. So it's showing that there is potentially competition. But these severe head injuries in most cases are healing. They're not getting infected. They're obviously being cleaned, potentially being dressed. And this shows attention. And what's really exciting for us is we can now see the incidence of healed head wounds are very similar in both Neanderthals and in Homo sapiens, showing that they both have really good hygiene and potentially evidence of wound treatment and wound healing. With the emergence of the earliest known writing systems, we get the first glimpses into beliefs and thinking behind medical practices and customs. Arguably the earliest of all comes from ancient Mesopotamia. Ancient Mesopotamia was located between and around the Euphrates and Tigris rivers in what's modern day Iraq and Kuwait, as well as parts of Iran, Syria and Turkey. The region was home to some of the first written languages, Sumerian and Akkadian, and peopled by the likes of the Babylonians and Assyrians from around 3100 BC to 332 BC. They are often viewed as the starting point of modern human civilization. Within this world, a few leading figures stand out. There is a figure known as Esangil Kin Apli, who is a scholar, a traditional scholar who is linked with many medical texts. That's Dr. Jay Chrysostomo, Associate Professor in Assyriology at the University of Michigan. It's said that he was the chief scholar of a Babylonian king named Adad Apla Idina. So around the 11th century BCE. So this character, Esangel Kin Apli, he's connected with 
what we call the Diagnostic Handbook. It's traditionally said that he was the primary editor of this large 40-chapter book of various diagnostic omens and prognostications. And he is also connected with several other catalogs that listed out important texts and and compositions dealing with things of a medical or scientific nature. So when we talk about leading figures in Babylonian medicine, this is the figure who often comes up. Some of my colleagues, particularly Professor Mark Geller of the University College of London, has called Aesan Gilkin Apli a Babylonian Hippocrates due to his traditional association with many of these important works. In what will become a running theme throughout our series, the way people understood illness and sickness during this time was steeped in the supernatural as well as the physical. So the general idea, of course, in this culture in which the gods permeate everything, is that the gods and supernatural causes are the underlying cause of disease, sores, wounds, things like that. But not only gods and goddesses, but also characters such as demons, or we have even have things like ghosts or witches who might be the cause of certain illnesses. Evidence shows that health problems would be dealt with using a combination of physical treatments, such as medical concoctions, and also supernatural remedies such as incantations, sacrifices, votives, and even rituals. The ancient Mesopotamian historical record is rich with textual evidence of medical practitioners and practices. Most of the medical texts we have are written in Babylonian, and this language is a Semitic language that is related to Arabic, Hebrew, today, things like that. So we do know quite a bit about this language and can therefore decipher it and understand, for the most part, what these medical texts are talking about. We have over 2,500 years worth of evidence of medical practice from these texts. There are three kinds of medical texts. The first are scholarly divination texts from royal libraries in palaces and places such as the city of Nineveh. These texts listed possible scenarios based on physical evidence, such as the colour of urine. These lists enabled the users to think about what the outcomes might be. Another type of text found in libraries from this time offered a more therapeutic approach. Here we find detailed descriptions of treatments for various ailments, again from the physical to the supernatural. Dr J. Chrysostomo tells me that the final kind of texts found from this time are letters. In these letters, we have sometimes the letters of particular doctors or medical personnel who are writing to their colleagues, for example, and talking about how they treated a specific individual. And these we have quite a few of, not a lot, not nearly as many as some of these scholarly texts, but we know the names of some doctors. So we know the name of a man named uh, Shumu Libshi, who lived in the city of Nippur around 1300 BCE, who seems to be dealing with a particular family who lives in a house and all their different ailments. Or we have the chief doctor of the king, Esarhaddon, from the 8th century BCE, who writes to the king to help him deal with things like nosebleed or remedies for other fevers and things like that. So here we see doctors, usually called Asu in Assyrian or Babylonian, who are really focused on these physical 
therapies to help heal the patient. Those who deal primarily with supernatural causes, the priests, the incantation experts, are called ashipu or mashmashu in Babylonian. And there's a lot of debate over who in particular is dealing with medicine and what these various specializations are. But generally speaking, there is some overlap between the major professions here. We see asus, the doctors, or some might say pharmacists, compiling these physical remedies, dealing with the plants and the drugs and the various ingredients. And on the other hand, and they're dealing primarily with the physical uh, effects of illness, whereas the religious personnel, the incantation experts, are dealing primarily with the supernatural causes. And so they're the ones who are performing incantations to appease the particular gods so that we see this combination of therapeutic remedies with ritual performance. So that is basically what the texts tell us about who these medical practitioners are. When it comes to evidence of the transference of medical ideas within the ancient world, we find something of a complex picture. There are hints that Babylonian medicine might have influenced the diagnostic themes in the works of Hippocrates, who we will come on to very soon. However... Generally speaking, we don't seem to have very clear transference of these medical ideas between the ancient Middle East and the classical world. Where we do see direct influence, though, is more with Egypt. And so we do see certain illnesses, such as this illness having to do with fever and and blood that's called Samanu in, in Babylonian medicine. We do see this particular illness mentioned specifically in Egyptian medical texts from around the same time and with different ways of dealing with it, which is a fascinating scenario. One area that is particularly interesting is in the area of astral medicine. So we know that there is a lot of transference of ideas related to astronomy and astrology between Babylonia and the Greek world. So, for example, our zodiac is very much based in Babylonian mathematical principles, but this is in contrast to what we see in medicine, where things aren't quite so clear-cut. However, with astral medicine, there does seem to be this conflation of, well, from the Greek side, we like what the Babylonians are doing with astronomy, but maybe we don't like the medicine part so much. But if we look at medicine via astronomy, maybe we could take some of that into account. And so we see certain things dealing with astral medicine where certain diseases are linked with particular planets or particular constellations or are associated with parts of the zodiac. So a lot of this work was done in the mid-90s by Professor Erica Reiner and has been taken up more recently, again, by Professor Mark Geller, thinking about this connection between the stars and how those affect both human illness and the ways those illnesses can be treated. Even more specifically, Professor John Wee has postulated the existence of the Zodiac Man in Babylonian medicine. Now, the Zodiac Man is a concept well-known in Arabic medicine, in classical medicine, even in medieval European medicine, even in Chinese medicine. So it's a very 
well-known concept globally for medical practice, and that is connecting parts of the human body from head to toe with the zodiac, also sequentially. So Professor Wee has seen this in, in one particular Babylonian text, and if he's correct, then this is the first such instance of it in Babylonian medicine, and therefore might be something that has transferred over into the Greek world and perhaps elsewhere. And so, generally speaking, medicine was not a thing that transferred over into the classical Greek world, but this combination of astronomy and medicine, maybe there's a little bit more there to work with. It's time for us to move beyond ancient Mesopotamia. Almost in tandem, we find evidence from ancient Egypt of medical procedures and practices. A key text in our understanding of ancient Egyptian medicine comes from a papyrus that dates to the 17th century BCE, but is believed to be a transcription of a much, much older document, dating to around 2500 BCE. The papyrus appears to contain the collected teachings of Imhotep, a powerful figure during the reign of the pharaoh Djoser, and he's one of the few non-royal ancient Egyptians that we know about. The text contains the first known mention of cancer as a distinct disease. It also talks about broken bones, dislocated vertebrates, and details medical conditions such as abscesses and fractures. Beyond Egypt, by the 14th century BCE, we begin to find texts in ancient China detailing the illnesses and disorders suffered by the Shang dynasty, which is followed nearly a millennium later by more detailed medical texts under the Han dynasty. By around 600 BCE, we also find literature surrounding the ancient Indian physician Sushrutta. Sushrutha was an ancient Indian doctor and surgeon who wrote a medical treatise called the Sushrutha Samhita. That's Dr Sushma Jansari, historian and curator of the South Asia collection at the British Museum. It's not actually clear when, or in fact even whereabouts in India that he lived, but he probably lived at some point between the early centuries BC and AD. The Sushruta Samhita actually locates him in Varanasi, and that's a city in northern India on the banks of the River Ganges. And it's a city that's been continuously occupied right up to the present day for about 3,000 years. Varanasi is actually probably quite important to say, it's one of the most sacred Hindu sites in India, and a place where many Hindus come to spend the last years of their life. And it's on the guts by the banks of the River Ganges that they are cremated. So I guess there are quite obvious reasons why a doctor would live and practice here. So Sushruta is associated with a text called the Sushruta Samhita. Samhita means collection, so Sushruta Samhita means basically Sushruta's collection or compendium. There may well have been various different systems of medicine in ancient India, but the Sushruta Samhita is one of the earliest surviving texts of Indian medicine called Ayurveda. Now Ayurveda means knowledge of longevity, which sounds pretty good to me actually. And the Sushruta Samhita is a collection of lots of different texts that deal with all aspects of general medicine, including, for example, detailed accounts of surgery. And the whole work is divided into six main parts. Just to give you an idea about the contents, these six sections include information about For example, doctors' training, symptoms of diseases, anatomy, children's illnesses, medicines, and much, much more. But the most 
famous section focuses on surgery, including some of the earliest references to plastic surgery. According to the Sushruta Samhita, surgery is the most useful branch of medical knowledge, and there is a lot of detailed information about surgical training and also descriptions of the equipment needed for the different surgical procedures. There's quite a wide range of surgical procedures described in the work, from cataract removals to cutting out bladder stones, removing splinters, as well as suturing cuts. And it's sort of cringeworthy trying to think about this in terms of, you know, there's no antibiotics, I don't know about painkillers either. But then you have the best known parts of the plastic surgery section is probably the description of a rhinoplasty, which involved grafting a flap of skin from the forehead to repair a severed nose. And it's quite interesting. I mean, when you think back to Gillies, the very famous surgeon in World War One, for example, quite a similar technique that he used. And, you know, he quickly recognised that a graft will take better if it's still attached to living skin rather than cutting off a piece of skin and then grafting that entire piece onto another part of the body. So there's some quite interesting ancient precedents for for that kind of surgery. Now, I've also been talking quite a lot about just one person called Sushruta, but it's really important to note that it was not only written by Sushruta, but in fact different people contributed to the Sushruta Samhita over centuries The earliest part of the text may date to the late centuries BC and the most recent sections probably date to about the 5th century AD. So it's a body of medical and surgical knowledge that developed and grew over a very long period of time. And also, I think it's really important to note that it's not an isolated collection of technical knowledge because during this broad period of time, In India, there was a considerable body of knowledge contained in lots of technical treatises, including not only medicine, but also architecture, sculpture and theatre, just as a few examples. We now arrive at the time and place where you might find healers and medical practitioners using the medical kits held at sick to death and described by Dean at the beginning of the podcast. It is in this time where we find perhaps the two most influential figures in the shaping of Western medicine, Hippocrates and Galen. Hippocrates and Galen, they are the two big names of ancient Greek medicine or ancient Greek or Roman medicine, both of them put together. That's Dr Nisha McSweeney, expert in the history of the classical world and its archaeology. They're both Greeks. They're both from what is now either the kind of the western part of modern day Turkey or the islands on the eastern coast of Greece and the Aegean. So they're both from that part of the world. Hippocrates is a bit earlier. He's dates to the early 5th century BCE and Galen lived about seven centuries later, so the second century CE. Hippocrates is associated with the professionalisation of medicine and moving ideas about the causes of illnesses significantly away from the supernatural. Biographies of Hippocrates were written centuries after his life, so very little is certain about his personal background. In comparison, however, we know much more about the life of Galen. He was the son of a wealthy architect and had been schooled at a sanctuary dedicated to the ancient Greek god of medicine. Influenced by Hippocrates and guided by this early education, he attended the great medical school of Alexandria and became a practising physician. So the key theories of both Hippocrates and Galen was that health in the human body is based on balance. So balance of different elements within the body and also balance of different conditions that the body is in. 
they both have this idea of four humours, that the body is made up of these four elements in different proportions and different quantities and different types of the body. And you can be ill if you have an imbalance, so too much phlegm or not enough phlegm or too much bile or not enough bile. And the same was true if you had an imbalance in the conditions around you. So the four conditions that were hot and cold, wet and dry. So if you were too dry, you'd be dying of thirst, or if you were too hot, you would be dying of overheating. So they were the first to kind of develop these kind of perhaps scientific ways for explaining illness, which were not to do with having occurred the wrath of the gods, but to do with natural causes, imbalances either within the body or imbalances surrounding the body. We'll be returning to the doctrine of the four humours quite a lot during the course of the series, so let's list them. They were blood, phlegm, yellow bile and black bile, and they were first set out in the Hippocratic Treatise on Nature of Man at around 400 BCE and further developed and championed by Galen. The doctrine would dominate Western medicine right up until the 19th century with the discovery of germs. So, we know that both Hippocrates and Galen have had a huge historical influence, but were they as renowned during their own lifetimes? I think, actually, maybe we make more of a big deal of them now than they might have been at the time. Hippocrates was a bit of a superstar in his day, but then he was kind of almost, uh, not forgotten, but he kind of faded a little bit over the centuries. Galen as well was a kind of a superstar celebrity doctor who was kind of famed around the Roman world in his time. But he too fell out of favour for a number of centuries. And it's, it's not really until the 15th century when they both kind of come back as being important in the Western European tradition. But actually, I think a lot of the advances that both of them made, they came from engagement with um, ancient Near Eastern medicine and especially Neo-Babylonian medicine. They both took a lot from that Mesopotamian medical tradition. I asked Dr Nisha McSweeney if we've perhaps put too much weight on their global influence and importance. Maybe we have. It depends whether we need figures to to look to and venerate because it's important to see them as particular points in the past or we're looking for the for the real origins. I think the importance of Hippocrates and Galen, both of them, is that they wrote a lot. They wrote so much down, especially Galen, Hippocrates. We're not so sure how much of the Hippocratic corpus actually is his own writing. But their importance was really how much they recorded for us rather than complete innovation. When it comes to the actual medical innovations, the actual medical research, they're very much standing on the shoulders of giants, but they do happen to be the ones who kind of get into writing. And that's why we have their writings and their names preserved today. One of the most distinct things about Galen and Hippocrates is how far their ideas travelled. Both of their ideas have travelled pretty widely around both Europe, North Africa, and what's today the Middle East, following the kind of the fall of the Roman Empire in the Byzantine period, especially Galen's writings were the, the basis for medical training throughout the Byzantine Empire, and also in, in the Arab world as well. And moving into the early medieval period, Galen was very, very well known in the Arab world. And that's where a lot of kind of work was done to kind of further his scholarship. It's only later on then from the 11th century, and then especially, you know, 15th, 16th century onwards, that, that they get reintroduced into kind of the Latin-speaking Western part of Europe, and the reach spreads out westwards at that point. It's important to remember that Galen's work, in particular, 
was not just rooted in theory. He did conduct practical investigations into the body as well. Yes, Galen is really well known for some important advances in anatomy based on a series of um, experiments that he conducted, especially when he was in Alexandria, which was the, the kind of the hub of scholarship and knowledge at the time. So in Alexandria, he did experiment on animals to try and get a sense of their anatomy, to understand in particular the nervous system and to see how different parts of the body were connected together. And that allowed him to establish kind of a number of procedures procedures in surgery especially he's well known for kind of cleaning out ulcers and being able to remove ulcers and polyps and these kinds of things relatively safely and with quite a lot of precision which was quite dramatic and uh, important at the time but you can imagine the kind of reputation he must have got as a as a, something of a butcher with conducting these kind of very bloody experiments on on animals but all for a good cause he would argue there's a problem with his experiments when it comes to the human body. Absolutely. He, he's supposed to have conducted some experiments on monkeys, but mostly it's kind of sheep and pigs and goats, and those obviously don't quite fit human anatomy perfectly. We have travelled on the winds of a huge amount of time, and it's important to note that what we've told is the story of what has been left behind. From prehistoric skeletons to classical texts, this can only ever be a flavour of the reality of medicine during the ancient world. In the next episode, we're joined by leading historians to explore the way medicine, religion and cultural traditions fused during the medieval period. With thanks to today's guests, Dr. Matt Pope, Dr. Jay Chrysostomo, Dr. Sushma Jansari, and Dr. Nisha Maxweeney. This series was written, narrated, and produced by myself, Rebecca Radil. It was edited and produced by Peter Curry and was brought to you by Sick to Death. For Medicine Through Time GCSE students, revision notes and sources are available via our website, www.sicktodeath.org. Time.